to whom it may concern. For the past few weeks, a chain letter promoting OK Soda has run on local TV. Despite a huge outpouring of support, there have been detractors, notably Americans mad about OK. They have compared our campaign to a virus and to the notorious kudzu plant, creeping everywhere, strangling all it touches, needing only dirt to survive. To this, we can only offer the following response. Things are going to be OK. Welcome, History Nerds, to Geeks Out of episode 239. Hey, I remember that. The movie. I'm Andy. I'm Mike. I'm Joe. I'm Catherine. And we are um, talking tonight about something that we had... uh, I feel it's been gestating for a while. I know I've been recommending it for quite a bit. But tonight, we are talking about historical events... People, uh, things, pop culture stuff that really deserves its own dramatic interpretation, but has not yet had it. So what we're going to do is uh, we are going to come up with our own. Just like last episode, we are going to pitch some amazing movies and TV shows based on stuff that has not already had a dramatic interpretation of it. So we had a, a lot, we had some pretty good feedback here. So I want to I want to kick into our our feedback first, and I'm going to start with um, our our good friend Dave McLean. So Dave says he's got two. He's got a comedy and he's got a drama on here. So for drama, the fall of the Antoine Wall, the Romans get their asses kicked by the Scots and are forced to retreat. I think that would make a pretty good show. Hmm. Yeah, what what's what kind of wall? The Antoine Wall. It was it was it was a wall, probably in the British Isles. Now keep in mind that um, the Romans were able to take uh, Britannia, but they weren't able to take Ireland or Scotland. So this yeah, is I, kind of. I always that, thought it was called Hadrian's Wall. Well, this one is the Antoine a, Wall. This is it's a it's a different wall. Ah, yeah. Um, and it, then it, for the, con- the, the the Romans loved building walls in the in the in the British Isles. Yeah, yeah they did. And many of them still stand today. Yes, they do. And then for comedy, we have the making of Star Wars, a movie that looks like an absolute train wreck the whole way through. It ends up being a classic. Include the romance between Fisher and Ford. I almost, <laughs> I almost made that on my list, um, but nah. well, you, that you, would, you know, that really would, yeah. Well, there's so there, there's so there was so much drama surrounding the making of Star Wars. Yeah. That a li- even like a lighthearted look at it would would probably be pretty entertaining. Yeah, Dave actually just, writes just like a. Go ahead, Joe. No, go ahead. No, I was, was going to say, say like a com- a comedy of errors would be like perfect. Right, right. Dave Dave says I think you could do a pretty good dramedy uh, just using the anecdotes. I know off the top of my head, even better than if you did your research. The fun part would be casting people like George Lucas and Carrie Fisher and Alec Guinness. Peter Capaldi should play Alec Guinness. Of that, I am positive. Yeah, I can see it. it. That would be an interesting one because you have like this 
prim and proper you know, Shakespearean actor yeah. and having to say things like, the force would be with you. Yeah. Well, also, I, I had I had recommended to him, too, that I can imagine a rough cut screening of the uh, film ending with a scene reminiscent of the audience scene from the springtime for Hitler number and the producers where everyone's just sitting there after that, that rough cut ends and their mouths are just hanging open with how terrible it is. <laughs> um, Dave does write though about, uh, about the Antoine wall. I would make it a story where the whole thing tips on something small, but tragic, like the murder of a local Scottish girl that a Roman centurion has to solve that tips the balance of power. So it's pretty good stuff there. So, so we had that was that was from Dave. Thank you so much, Dave. Uh, from Facebook, uh, our friend Eric Wolpert says, "I know nothing of the Silk Road that was uh, the way the West was connected to China." Also, Marco Polo. I don't recall any movies about his adventures, at least not recently. I also find the city of Petra very intriguing too. For the U.S., I realize there's a ton of whitewashing of what we learned in school. The Tulsa riots, for example. Another crazy story is an actual coup in Wilmington, North Carolina. A black man was elected to uh, serve public office, and the entire existing city, country, government would not allow him uh, to take his role and install their own cho- uh, choice. For New England history, Great Molasses fled of Boston. Bronson Potter from uh, Mason, New Hampshire, successfully sued Kodak for pat- uh, patent infringement, became a hermit, and ultimately lost his pilot's license as he flew a single-engine plane under the tallest railroad... Uh, Trestle in New Hampshire at the time in Greenville. Oh, That's quite a good thing. Now, I know that there is a there. There have been several Marco Polo things. I think most of them were claptrap, though. I'm fairly certain Richard Chamberlain played Marco Polo at some point. Well, there there was a recent one uh, miniseries on I want to say Netflix. Okay, called Marco Polo. That's certainly possible. I don't know. At, at some point, they just blend together. Yeah. Um. So we had. That uh, we also had a few others from um, from Facebook as well. Let me pull those up here. So uh, we've got Adam Carreri who says the Battle of Trafalgar, which I, I'm a nerd for Brit- uh, British naval battles, so I don't think I've ever seen that done. Uh, Adam also brings up the naval battles of Iron Bottom Sound. Brian Mixter brings up the Battle of Yorktown because. Brian does reenactments. Yeah. Bill Horman brings up uh, Benjamin Waite and Martha Leonard Waite, Hatfield, Massachusetts. Their true story reads like fiction. And I asked Bill, I asked Bill to give me a little more information about this. And essentially what I found out was that uh, in the 17th century, um, Martha, who was the wife of Benjamin, and another woman were, were kidnapped by Native Americans. And they had to go through this arduous task of, of, of rescuing them. So it's, it's pretty interesting. Um, we've got our friend Steve Day who brings up a period in history between the fall of communism and 9-11 when Gen X collectively thought world peace is now permanent. We're never going to have a generation generational trauma. This sucks. Yeah. Do you remember that? Do you guys remember when we were the, uh, the generation that didn't know war? And the second they proclaimed that – the first desert storm happened. Oh my god, yeah. <laughs> um, my mother-in-law, Janet, also brings up New England Historical Society highlights some intriguing stories that would make for some interesting meter- media material. Thank you, Janet. So, going on uh, to 
our 10 account, the app formerly known as uh, Twitter. <laughs> We've got Triv <laughs> at Trivial Theater who says it's supposed to be coming out uh, but has been trapped in development hell for years now. But the story of H.H. H. Holmes during the 1839 Chicago World's Fair is crazy. And if you know – you guys familiar with H.H. H. Holmes? Oh, is, is that no. – was that the one that um, – that- Leonardo DiCaprio was about behind it. It was like the first I don't know uh, the serial killer. Story. Yeah, he was a he built a murder house. Yeah, it was the one that um, oh, oh oh yeah 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 like uh, Texas Chainsaw oh, Massacre yeah, yeah. was based on him. He, um, um, how has a movie not been made about this guy? It's just trap. Um, like they, they 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 did do. I'm pretty sure there was a TV version of the book Devil in the White City. Yeah. Okay. I'm pretty, I, sure, I'm pretty sure they made a move, uh, something about that. Um, yeah, the, the closest I've seen, like I've seen a bunch of like those really shitty, cheap-looking documentaries that show up on Amazon Prime that are like 15 years old. Um, but the closest thing I've seen to anything with H.H. H. Holmes is actually like a like a fictionalized version of a kind of H.H. H. Holmes character, and it was on um, the hotel season of American Horror Story. Mm-hmm. Played by Evan Peters because that guy can't not play a serial killer. Yeah, Apparently I know, not. I know Leonardo DiCaprio has been trying to get that one made for a while now. It's an intriguing story. I mean, it would be terrifying. And the thing is, too, is that they could make it with all the gore. And what I've get, what I've gleaned from horror nerds on Twitter is that they're all nuts. They are a different oh, breed oh, yeah. of person. It really, really is like, wow, you guys are really, really love your horror, don't you? They, they are not well in the head. So, and we also have one from Nightmare Now, which is at Nightmare Now Pod. The Battle of Castle uh, Eider at the end of Western Front World War II needs to be a movie. In short, this old Austrian castle has been converted to a Nazi prison for political prisoners. USA takes it over, then team up with the surrendering German guards to repel an SS tank division. It's wild. Oh, I've heard that story. That would be so good. I would love to see, and that—that's big theater. That's a big theatrical movie. Yeah, that's that's like Saving Private Ryan levels of uh, of uh, yeah. epic. Hey, so we had a few uh, late responses. That I'd be remiss if I didn't go back in time and throw into our our discussion. The first comes from uh, our friend Brian Dermody in. Um, in response to uh, Brian Mixter bringing up the Battle of Yorktown, uh, Brian Dermody says, if we were in that era, I had always thought the Knox Artillery Train would be a dope miniseries. Uh, we have Jesse Olson, who says, Bathsheba Spooner, the Dabsville community in Glo- uh, Gloucester in the early 20th century would make an interesting American Downton Abbey-esque drama. Uh, also, she mentions Quack Walker and Chris Marrera, Brings up the Falklands War, the invasion of Grenada, the Iran-Contra scandal. Interesting, we've never actually gotten a um, a dramatization of the Iran-Contra scandal. So, well, that's it for the uh, feedback that I had to go back in time to get. And I hope I can get out of here before I run into future me and collapse the entire time-space continuum. Hmm. Absolutely. So that... That is all of the um, social media feedback I got. Does anybody have? Did anybody get any? Mm-mm. Nope. 
Okay, well, let's let's move on then because we've got a lot of – we have our own that we all want to talk about. So what I'm going to do is we're all going to roundtable this. As you're describing it, also let me know where do you see it showing? Is it a is it a theatrical movie? Is it like a, like a streaming movie? Is it a streaming TV show or miniseries? Hmm. Let me know. So who, who wants to go first? Why don't you head us I off, Andy? Have... Yeah. Okay, I will get us started then, and I am going to start um, with. Electric Boogaloo, The Charm Life of Menachem Golan, and Canon Films. Our agent Marty Baum said, look, if you guys want to just go make a film and be totally left alone, there are two new guys in town. Menachem Golan and Yoram Globus were the heavyweights. They were the George Foremans and the Muhammad Ali's of the indie market. Canon is the only company who loves cinema. Cinema is our life. Yoram Globus was the businessman behind the movie making. Where is my money? You promise and promise and promise and you're not paying. Menachem Golan was the movie maker. Menachem, I cannot do it. I'm dying. Said, you know, do it and then die. I just had in my head what a movie producer should be, and Menachem just didn't quite fit that picture. <laughs> so, if you've ever seen the documentary, which by the way is free on Netflix right now, um, Electric Boogaloo, the story of Canon Films. Is oh that- my god. So Canon Films was <laughs> Like they, they were literally around for the 80s, from 1980 yeah. to 1989. Um, they started off – Menachem Golan was a producer and a director out in Israel, and he loved movies. There's a quote that he had about um, you know, he, he would never make money doing movies because the only thing he had left was his wife and kids, and if he could mortgage them to make a movie, he probably would do that. And he just – just insane. So when he came to the States to produce movies, he and his cousin, um, whose first name I can't remember, but the last name is Globus. That's where you get the name Golan and Globus from. Oh, as Globus. The they, um, they started making like, like historical titty films. So the um, – like the Emanuel movies, they were doing the um, Emanuel movies, and they loved Sylvia Christel so much that they, they put her to Lady Chatterley's Lover, even though she was at the time a horrendous drug addict. And all they, all they did was he would desc- – Menachem would describe to his director just, okay, she go into a room, she fuck. And then she go into this room, she fuck. Um, and watching the documentary, it's just listening to these people just – May, just doing this impression of just this exuberant man. I mean, he's a big guy. Um, and just talking about these high hopes that he had for these amazing, these movies that just had no chance in hell of succeeding. But he always ha- went in with the best of intentions. So my thought was for this movie, I want it kind of in the style of Weird, the Weird Al Yankovic story. Where nothing is really correct, he is he's just kind of walking through life where everything in his in his views, everything works out perfectly. He's walking through the set women are like, Manahim, I have something to ask you, 
And he'll go, yes, what is it? And a woman will like open up her shirt, like, do these look okay? Oh, yes. And then he'd just go and do something else. Um, but mainly focusing on some of the, not so much the bigger hits, but the more infamous films that he did. Yeah. So you're saying kind of like a more comedic version of Ed Wood, but set in the 80s? Uh, kind of, yeah. I mean, Ed Wood, you know, that, that, made Ed, that movie made Ed Wood to be like this wild-eyed optimist, and I think that that would be perfect. But I would like to focus on um, after they buy Canon Films, they, get, they pick up a distribution deal with MGM to make bigger and better movies. Um, so Sahara was a movie that they really wanted to make, and it was part Lawrence of Arabia, part um, the, great, the, the Great Race. And it was dreadful. But he had high hopes that it was going to be a big Academy Award winner. He actually said, I think Brooke Shields is going to win Best Actress for this movie. <laughs> yeah. Okay. And in the, well, in the documentary, they get Alex Winter, who is just like, Brooke Shields is Best Actress. But doing <laughs> that, then showing a success they did have in Breakin'. And then immediately fucking the whole thing up by doing Breaking 2, Electric Boogaloo, immediately after. Like, Breaking made a ton of money. Yeah. Electric Boogaloo, you know, Breaking 2 did not. And then going into the issues they had when they made the movie Bolero with uh, with Bo and John Derrick, where um, they had given them so much money and they hated the project so much that they blamed the Derricks for it. We're going to sue them. Um, and then gaining the rights to uh, Superman four, uh, where there, that that was at the point where you could watch a movie and tell the exact moment they ran out of money on the screen. Um, <laughs> oh yeah. So going to that, going to when they paid uh, Sylvester Stallone twelve million dollars for Over the Top, and then eventually Golden Globe is splitting up. Um, but beforehand, they both had knowledge of a new dance craze called the Lombada, and they each put out a movie in the same year. There was Lombada, and there was the Forbidden Dance. Oh my god, I had forgotten about the Lombada craze. Yeah. And that's the thing. But it's narrated by him as the most, you know, you know, wide-eyed optimistic thing in the world. And, 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 they, the most, and, the, and it had to be in the most earnest way possible. Like, no, no self-awareness of what he actually, of what right, he actually right. is. See the truth kind of coming out on screen, um, but still make it anachronistic enough, because this was a wild story. I, I highly recommend you watch the documentary, but yeah. I would love to see this. Steve Day and I both watched Electric Boogaloo around the same time, and we're both like, I need a movie about this man. I truly need a movie about this lunatic. Amazingly enough, he never did cocaine. I know. And the other thing, too, um, is that he would sell studios on, on like, giving him the money for the movies. By, by They had posters. And, like, okay, well, we've got this movie, and we've got this person attached to it. They would give them the money, and they would produce the, the movie based on the money that they got from just kind of selling the premise of the poster. These are also the same guys that promised Michael Dudikoff he was going to be uh, Spider-Man. Oh, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Man, I mean, that, seeing the double G of that of their logo was like a staple of a Friday night after, the, after a trip to the, uh, to the uh, mm -hmm. rental place. 
I would love to see a montage too of all of these movies kind of like stacked on top of each other where there is just like so much gratuitous violence and ninjas and boobs and comedy and ch- and uh, Charles Bronson coming out with like pol- you know military grade weapons in the the latter Death Wish movies where essentially it was like Charles Bronson is in Death Wish Four Crack City the city made of crack Charles Bronson goes into the city of nothing but minorities minority stereotypes he's gonna crack down on crack. They also made the uh, MST3K classic starring Kathy Ireland, Alien from L.A. Jesus Christ. Yeah. Hey, she lost her glasses. She's pretty now. <laughs> so got that squeaky-ass voice, though. <laughs> but that, So that's my that's my first pick. I would – what do you guys think? Is that a buy? Would you, would you, would you buy that? Would you, would you produce that if you had the money? Yeah, I wouldn't mind seeing that. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I, I'm, I'm in. I'm in. Catherine is very quiet I would, right I would, now. I wouldn't, but Sorry. I would, I would make it as, I would make it as outrageous as possible. You know, take all the true elements and just like turn them up to eleven. Exactly, and a failure to everybody else is a success in his eyes. And I didn't right. know. Did, did any of you guys actually see uh, Weird? I have not seen Weird yet. I have to get to that. Not yet. Yeah. No. Roku. We should. We really do need to get together at some point and watch it. But apparently, I can watch it, it for free on Roku. I don't have to pay for it. So. Oh, lovely, lovely. Yeah, it's but it's so tongue in cheek, and you know that not everything happened. You know, not everything is presented the way it really happened. Um, and that's yeah, it's, that's it's what I want. Yeah, Weird Al did a parody of bi- biopics. Yeah, it's it's a bi- it's a biography about a problematic person. But it's up, but it's based on the life of a very unproblematic human being. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, all right. So, who wants to go next? I'll go next. Uh, I'll right. start off with uh, I like to call this movie "Movies and Puppets," and basically a uh, bio a biopic. Catherine, <laughs> I've heard of, it pronounced uh, both ways. I know, I know, I know. I was just easy. Uh, but a yeah, biopic- well, I've, I've, I've been trying to, I've been trying to get back to biopic, which is how most people pronounce it. After somebody tried to yeah. drill into me to pronounce it biopic. Oh. Yeah. Interesting. Biopic makes it sound like it's made of chemicals. I like and that. And biopic makes it look, make it sound like you have a problem with your eyes. So yeah. neither is ah. good. <laughs> but uh, yeah, movies and puppets. A biopic about Joel Hodgson. Uh, start with his uh, stand-up comedian, uh, stand-up comedian days. And goes up to when he leaves uh, MSCK, and possibly with an epilogue of when he gets it back. It wasn't like, hmm, we've got this array of 22 shows. Let's survey them all. We really want to send off Joel with a fantastic movie. No, it just was, it could have been any movie. It just happened to be Mitchell. Okay. Uh, you know, maybe uh, have you know another actor playing him as the younger self, but in the epilogue when he gets MST3K back, it's actually Joel himself, if he's still around at this point. But, um, yeah, I mean, I just seeing, you know, him, you know, doing his uh, stand-up comedian on, uh, you know, uh, SNL, on Dave Letterman, his uh, hatred of, uh, uh, oh, uh, uh, who is that prop comic? 
Gallagher? Well, yeah, his hatred of Gallagher. No, 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 but no, no, Carrot Top. Carrot Top. That's, yes. Oh. Um, and uh, then, you know, how he's, de- he, how he's developing uh, the, the, the idea of MC3K and the building the puppets and um, kind of his, uh, kind of his, the crumbling of his early, the relationship between him and Jim Mallon. Um, I, I just think it'd be really interesting. You know, you, you could do it kind of tongue in cheek, but I kind of prefer a little bit more serious one. Yeah. His, his terrible politics. Oh, I didn't realize that Joel had terrible politics. <laughs> I, I knew, I knew Mike wasn't uh, great with politics, but I didn't know about Joel. Oh. Mm-hmm. Oh. Uh, but you either you you either die a hero or lo- live long enough to become the villain. Exactly. Thank you, Harvey Dent. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I, I, I had a feeling this one would probably be probably be Roku because there it, it's not. It would be more of a niche type thing. Um, and obviously because yeah. C3K and C3K is very 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 popular, but not really widespread in a sense. It's kind of both at the same time. It relishes in its cult status. Yes, very mm-hmm. much so. Um, so that's why I think Roku, because, you know, it, because Weird, it, you know, Weird Al Yankovic, yeah, he's like multi-Grammy award-winning, but he's still kind of a cult artist in a sense. So I yeah. think this one kind of would fly in a similar similar vein. Yeah, yeah. I, I like that idea. I, I would like to see it, but I would like to see it on the seri- more serious end. Mm. Yeah. They're making it my favorite, cool. favorite show. Nice. <laughs> no, yeah, there's that. I like that a lot. Yeah, yeah that. All right. What, what do we say on this one? I, 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 would, I, would, I would subscribe to Roku if I didn't already have one to watch this. <laughs> Joe, can mm. Yeah. I th- yeah, I th- yeah it, it definitely has to be. A, I don't think that it, ha- it would have enough legs to be a, a, a theatrical release. Oh, absolutely. Just because it's such a niche product. So, yeah, I would yeah. definitely would want the streaming services. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Nice. Right. Well, Joe, what do you what, what's what's your, your yours? I know that Catherine has, only has one, so I wanna I wanna savor that one. <laughs> okay. Um, all right. So for my first pitch, um, this is a. Well, okay. Let me let me throw the pitch out there, and then I'll and then I'll give it an ex, uh, explanation. Let's run around so the flagpole and see who salutes, right? <laughs> right. So the name the name of the picture, and this is the, just a working title. It's called "The Faithless Virginian," a okay. historical period drama. It tells the story of General George Henry Thomas, who fought on the side of the Union despite his aristocratic Virginia roots, and he has the distinction of not having lost any engagement where he was in command. He played decisive roles in many of the war's pivotal battles, and during his efforts during the disastrous Battle of Chickamauga, he effectively saved the Army of the Cumberland and therefore saved the Union. But despite all his power, his military powers, he faced discrimination and constant questioning from his superiors and his compatriots in, in the Union Army 
and questioning his loyalty due to be being effectively effectively from the capital of the Confederacy. So what brought this up is I think throughout history, ever since the end of Reconstruction, history has paint has painted a uh, has really tilted and a majority of the country has really bought into the lost cause bullshit of the Confederacy. When William Rosencrantz, the Union Army commander, fled the field, Thomas remained behind, fighting on alone with his men against the whole Reb army, badly outnumbered and outflanked. And this holding action single-handedly saved the Army of the Cumberland from complete destruction. And two months later, United States forces would get their revenge at the Battle of Missionary Ridge, where Thomas and William Tecumseh Sherman orchestrated a frontal attack on the Confederate center that shattered their lines, and those lines, might I add, were entrenched on high ground. And then, in December 1864, Thomas faced off against John Bell Hood, who sucks, by the way, in the Battle of Nashville, and destroyed his army. That's not hyperbole. He literally destroyed it. The Army of the Tennessee was laid low. Its ruin smote upon the mountainside. There would be no more large-scale fighting west of the Appalachians for the remainder of the war. Where there's this belief that the only reason the North won was overwhelming numbers and because the North was industrialized, while the South was, you know, the, the Southern generals were... Gentlemen warriors who fought with honor and, and, and fought for a righteous cause, bullshit. which is absolute bullshit. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. But oh, also, also that see- it was about tariffs and not slavery, even though no, in their declaration, right. they said slavery. No, and no, they didn't yeah. say anything about no, the no, tariffs. That, that, and if they'd stayed, stayed in the government, they could have voted against it. No, no, it, that's, 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 you know, we, that's, we all know the truth and everything else like that. But a lot of the folk, ever since, like I said, ever since Reconstruction with the lost, co- the lost cause myth, we've seen a lot of valoration of Southern generals like Robert Lee, you know, and you see military bases named after, you know, a lot of people know who Southern generals are, you know, um, um, Stonewall Jackson, Bedford, uh, Nathan Bedford Forrest, uh, Hood, General, and like I said, General Lee, and a lot of, a lot of the Northern generals outside of Ulysses, U.S. Grant and Sherman aren't really well known. Right. You know, so there's this myth that the Southern generals were better military generals than, than the North. And I, I, there's this creator on YouTube that I, that I love to watch called Aten Shea Films. Mm-hmm. And he has this, okay. uh, this series called um, Checkmate Lincolnites, where he basically, <laughs> he plays two characters. He plays... Um, um, uh, Johnny Reb, you know, a, a Confederate soldier, and uh, and Billy Yank, you know, a, a Union soldier, and they basically <laughs> he tears apart in a very funny way. He tears apart all the lost moth, all the lost myth, um, um, all the lost cause myth. Every you know, he, he disassembles it piece by piece. And he had one episode where he did where the he questioned what the question was: Did the South really have better generals? And Categorically, the answer is no. The Union had way better uh, generals than the South did. And one of them was this gentleman, George Henry Thomas. He came from, a, a, like I said, an aristocratic Virginia uh, family. You know, his family owned slaves, 
and he, he made no secret about it. But he was disgusted by it after the, the slave rebellion of uh, uh, Nate's Rebellion, I think about, it was 1811 or 1813. But he basically, it changed his mind. And he was a unionist through and through. He wanted to save the union. And throughout, he was one of the, he is considered one of the best generals ever in U.S. military history. But because he was humble, he was a humble man, he destroyed all his wartime correspondence. He didn't write any memoir. He, you know, he, he was rare among generals in, from the Civil War that he did not write any memoirs whatsoever. He just he didn't want any of the acknowledgement or glory that came from being a general. He just like wanted to do his job. And when the job was over, he just wanted to go and disappear. And 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 you see a lot of Civil War movies offer like a really sanitized version of what really happened in the civil war yeah and again a lot of a lot of the big civil war movies all really take that lost cause myth and kind of run with it so if you see like gods and generals and gettysburg and all this they you know you, General, you, 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 you hear of letter the confederacy and that's i'm sorry to interrupt you joe that's the thing it's something that i hate about civil war movies is that they right. all they're they, all love they they take the side of the Confederacy as this role. Exactly. There were there was a romantic cause. Well, no, right, but glory is the exception to the rule, Catherine. If okay. you look at the okay. history of Civil War movies, they are generally going back to a birth of a nation, and we all know what that is. <laughs> generally, they lean very heavily on the lost cause myth and take the that's why if you ever when you watch civil war movies you see the southern generals with these soaring lilting uh, accents and just like and and meanwhile the northerners are just like thugs yeah but it, also, you, don't, you don't see ulysses s grant portrayed in a movie without him like taking a swig out of his flask because yes he right. was a horrendous alcoholic but <laughs> Right. Well, he saved it. He, but he was a brilliant general, and that's the thing. Yeah. And this movie, this movie would not shy away from one. The whole, and, and, and again, and the other thing you see is that it's a very these Civil War movies, aside from like Glory, are very sanitized. They don't show the horrors that was the Civil War. So this movie would show like the Civil War was not, you know, brothers and you know two brothers having a fist fight. It was they were going for each other's throats and slashing. Them. And yeah. but you'd also have the conflict of the southern general, the su general from Virginia, from the Confederacy, fighting on the sides of the Union. So he's got his own co personal conflicts with those around him, as well as his, you know, his southern compatriots. Yeah. Now, I can oh. see it as maybe, you know, like a two and a half hour, three hour epic if you just want to focus on just the man. And his personal journey from, you know, from being an aristocratic Virginian uh, gentleman to, you know, to Gettysburg or a miniseries where you, you, you not only do you see his personal journey, but also the epic battles that he took in because he was a badass. He destroyed a lot of southern armies. I know that sounds pretty cool. Yeah, I like that. I I do like that a lot. I you know I would I would sit and watch that. I would pause because you know my ass can't take unless unless it's like a Lord of the Rings 
or Endgame, I need to get up every once in a while. Yeah, I can see. I can see it as a, as a tri- I, I can see it as a trilogy. I mean, but it, it it has to be like epic and and big in scope. Yeah, and not shy away from the truth of what was the Civil War. And you wouldn't yeah. see that on TNT because TNT is the perpetrator oh of the you know we gods and generals. It's perpetrator of gods and generals. Yeah, yeah. No, I I I'd see it as like. You know, we want the kind of brutality of war that we got from Braveheart. Yeah. And right, I want, and, I want to see, I want to see, ki- I want to see thirteen-year-old kids' lower legs getting blown off because right. of, you know, because of a, a, a cannonball came skipping through them. Right, kind of like the Patriot. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. If if I want a Mel Gibson type uh, uh, director without the problemat- problematic problematic Gump Mel Gibson. <laughs> Because Mel Gibson's going to whitewash the hell out of it. So. Exactly. Yeah, not not him, but somebody. Not what I want. Not yeah. a lot right now. We got a uh, we got Mel Gibson's father, Hudson Gibson, on here. He's uh, <laughs> going to tell yeah, you right. uh, the Confederacy was misunderstood. And uh... and by the way, if you want, if you want to see, I, I, like I said, I would re- highly recommend watching the uh, Aten Shay uh, YouTube channel for Checkmate Licking Nights because it's a very entertaining. And he does a great job of like taking apart the uh, lost cosmos. I love that. I love that. I that Joe. Out of everything, you had me at the lost cosmos because that is something that's always driven me nuts about. Oh, me too. Oh, yeah. This is Civil War. Cool. All right. Well, let's. I, I, I'm I'm in on that. You guys in on that one? Yeah, definitely. If I were into war movies, I'd be in on that, but I'm not. That's the only reason I'm not in. Ah, gotcha. That's fair. All right. So um, the next one on my list then is 40 I, – I, I entitled it 40 Elephants, and I'm, I'm thinking about this as like a streaming series like on Hulu or Amazon – and it takes inspiration from like, the style of shows like Harlots and the Great, where it's a period piece, but there's a lot of anachronisms built into it, including the music. Um, so the 40 Elephants were a criminal ring of thieves who were pretty much the scourge of London in the late 19th century and early parts of the 20th century. In the late 19th century, nefarious gangs ruled the streets of London, but one stood out above the rest, the 40 Elephants, London's all-female organization. Contemporaries of the real-life Peaky Blinders, these women were expert shoplifters, and their queen, Diamond Danny, ran the outfit with ruthless precision. So what happened was they would start out as uh, they would dress up as ladies' maids, and they would go to stores and they would steal um, because they're in there to like shop for their, the, you know, their, their quote unquote, their, their, their mistresses. But they would just steal. And then every once in a while they would go into like wealthy people's homes, dressed as servants and rob the houses blind. And then as they as they stepped up and stepped up and stepped up. They could afford to buy more elaborate outfits so they could go in to jewelry stores and, and, and higher-end merchandise dressed up of, of ladies of, of leisure. 
and no one would bother them because it never occurred to anybody that a, a well-dressed woman could just be robbing them under, you know, just under their noses. And it was a criminal. It was a criminal ring that was first led by Mary Carr, and then eventually by Alice Diamond, who went by Diamond Annie. Um, and I think what I would like to see this as, with a lot of like that, you know, it's it's factual up to a point, but have a power struggle towards the end where Mary Carr is losing control of the forty elephants to um, uh, Diamond Annie, and there's you know it's just it's just a group of just. British women who have their own designs to maybe try to go straight or they have difficulty following the rules where they weren't allowed to drink on um, on thief, uh, you know, on, on days. And, um, you know, they, they, they had to they, they had to have boyfriends that were kind of vetted by their bosses to make sure that they weren't cops. Or anything, and it just—it seems to me like that would be a really cool thing. I saw this. I actually saw a piece on this on the cha- on the YouTube channel Weird History, and I'm like, that would make a hell of a show. Because if you've seen Harlots, especially Harlots, Harlots is—it's late late 19th century London about this this brothel. And these women that are struggling to maintain control of their brothel because there's a, a higher end brothel where they you know they have to deal with shakedown, um, shakedowns from that and the law, and I think it's 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 pretty cool. And that's I think that this would make a, a really fun series. By I like it. I I like it because I like the idea of showing 19th century women in a different light. Especially in English, you know, in English society, mm-hmm. yeah, that doesn't show them as just plain harlots or as kind of, you know, meek. But my concern would be, how do you not make this a female version of Peaky Blinders? Uh, well, that's the thing. First of all, I've never watched Peaky Blinders. The only reason I know of Peaky Blinders is because every dude that wants to make themselves feel, you know, like sound hard and, you know, uncaring to the weight of the world, they post those fucking memes. That yeah, have, no, yeah, I know what you mean. You know, fuck all to do with the show, but, you know, if you're going to stab me in the back, you better stab me in the front, look me in the eyes. Yeah, okay, Snowflake. Right, yeah, it's people who, don't, who miss the point of the whole show, but yeah. Yeah. Uh, by anachronistic music, you mean like kind of like um, uh, Cruella? Yeah, very similar to that. Um, the music in Harlots had a lot of electric guitar in it, and a lot of just like it had a, it had more of like an Irish rock feel to it. Mm. Th- that type of music. Okay, but so I wouldn't mind something like that. Interesting. Yeah, so 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 not like Sofia Coppola's movie about uh, Marie Antoinette. Uh, no, I I wouldn't put in unless you know maybe at the end, kind of like what The Great does, where at the end of every episode, when you cut to credits, you get a song that that is definitely anachronistic and modern because that's what The Great did. They ended the series with um, "Shook Me All Night Long," but doing something like that that pertains to like the the. Um, the circumstance they find themselves in in the um at the end of the episode hmm. yeah. 
I mean, I, I personally just would love to see uh, like some you know crime from uh, late eight, late eighteen hundreds, early nineteen hundreds London. That'd be, I think that would be kind of yeah, cool. being, being yeah being committed by women. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly, and you can have now, all different your your different archetypes of of women. The you know that the tough, but you know you know she's got a squishy middle. Um, <laughs> Thief. It'd be it'd oh, be God. it'd be ocean. It'd be oceans eight, but good. Yeah, yeah. Actually, I liked oceans eight. It's oceans twelve. Enough. <laughs> Even though, um, what's his name from what we do in the shadows? That's the one that builds the continuity. That's the one that builds the universe. Yes, he does. <laughs> Matt Berry. I'm doing gay shit over here. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, all right, Mike. Yes. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, uh, Catherine. What are your thoughts on this? Um, I think it would work. I mean, the bling ring did well, so. I forgot about bling ring. But yeah, that that was that was based uh, on a true no, story. No, I have no idea if this is all based on something else or not. But I choose to remain <laughs> ignorant. So, <laughs> what was it? <laughs> I said I I I I'd never watched the Bling Ring, so I choose to remain ignorant. This stuff might all be, you know, it might be a, a full adaptation of the Forty Elephants, and I would never know. No, no, no. The Bling Ring is based on an actual thing that happened. I oh. haven't seen the. Yeah, I haven't seen the Bling Ring, but I did hear about it on Scam Goddess. Oh, okay. It was a bunch of it was a bunch of young people who just broke into celebrity homes and stole expensive things. Okay. Oh yeah, yeah, I've heard about that. Yeah. Yep. Yep. So you know, if that did, you know, that did pretty well. So you know, a true story. If people, you know, people deep down want to see the rich get robbed. So it had, uh, that, that had Emma Watson in it, didn't it? Emma Watson, See? Hayden P- Panettiere, yep. P- Zach Efron, yep. Lindsay Lohan, Hilary Duff, Brian Austin Green, Megan Fox, Orlando Bloom. So wow. all the young, good-looking actors. Yes, is what's is that's what's showing up on my uh, my search, but I'm not going <laughs> to swear to it. Because, you know. Oh, cool. All right. All right. So, Mike, I guess you're up. All right. Cool. Uh, my next one would be a four to six episode miniseries called "The Happiest Land on Earth." And be basically all about uh, Walt's uh, effort to build Dis- build Disneyland. To all who come to this happy place, welcome. Disneyland is your land. Here, age relives fond memories of the past, and here, youth may savor the challenge and promise of the future. Disneyland is dedicated to the ideals, the dreams, and the hard facts that have created America, with the hope that it will be a source of joy and inspiration to all the world. Thank you. Um, okay, I, wanna, I do want to ask a question. Sure. How is, how is this going to be different than all the other documentaries that covered the building of Disneyland? Well, this would be a dr- dramatic yeah. Ah. Uh-huh. This would, this it, would, wouldn't it wouldn't be, be a documentary. documentary. It'd just be. Yeah. Right. 
Yeah, uh, probably start probably start with um probably just like as World War II is ending or just after. Um, during that time, Walt was pretty much kind of self distancing distancing himself from the studio because after the animation strike in uh, what was it forty one or forty two or so, he he pretty much had lost his all of his love for uh, the animation and. Then you know, you know, he started building this idea about hey, what, these are, all these little perks are kind of cool, and you know, as you know, he started coming up with Mickey Mouse Park as he you know he started getting uh, various people, including a lot of his animators, in to help him, and then finally he managed to get money, but he had to build it all in less than a year, and yeah, I I'd love to for this to be, I mean, I. I imagine it would probably be on Disney Plus, but I'd rather it be on Hulu because I would like them to portray Walt more realistically, you know, flaws and all. Yeah. And I, mm-hmm. I get the feeling Disney Plus would probably try and oh, yeah. Walt- sanitize it. It'd be sanitized. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. hundred percent. Well, Mike, if you think about that Mickey Mouse documentary that we watched that was produced by Disney Plus, they, it, while they didn't completely like, tarnished the legacy of Mickey Mouse. They were pretty honest about a lot of the stuff, you know, like the litigation and stuff that they went through. Yeah, well, I mean, like, I just always go back to um, how Behind the Attraction, which is mm-hmm. you know, really fun series, but I watched their, um, their Behind the Attraction on uh, the Disneyland Hotel. Yeah. And they get to the point where, uh, you know, the Rathers... You know, the Disney company gets it from the, uh, takes it over from the Rathers. And they, you know, the behind the attraction says, oh, yeah, when, and uh, rather, you know, he he willed it to the uh, to the Disney company. He wanted them to have it. And then, you know, you, you go to um, Defunct, uh, no, Yesterworld, the Yesterworld um, YouTube channel, and watch their very video on the Disneyland Hotel. And, like, no, Michael Eisner in the, in the board pretty much um, made it so selling it to anyone else would be impossible. Yeah. Without completely destroying the the hotel. Yeah. So it wasn't like this, oh, he didn't will it. No, no, they kind of yanked it out from under them. Right, right. And I, I just, because so, I love Behind the Attraction, but they sanitize it a little bit too much for my taste. And I would like to, because let's face it, Walt was... Especially after the animation, yeah. After the animation strike, he was not a nice person to most of his animators. And let if you yeah. went if you went on strike, he wrote you off basically. He uh, tried to fire yeah, most of those Ex-Estacio, people. Was it Exostasio or was there somebody else that he? No, it wasn't X. It was no Exostasio. He was he was uh, he loved Exostasio. No, um, uh, I'd have to go back and look at it, but there were a number of animators that he. He tried to fire, and um, a couple of them that he actually did, but he was forced to rehire. <laughs> um, so I, I want to see this like this flawed Walt, but I, you know, it's just his struggle because he went through a lot to to build Walt, uh, Disney World in less than a year. Yeah, uh, and, right. And, and the thing is, and the thing is, a lot of the lessons he applied from Disneyland, or that he learned from Disneyland, he applied to Disney World. Right, yeah. Well, that's why he got the. He, that's why he got that special tax district and everything. Yeah, 
but I, and it's I, screwing I, over Florida now. <laughs> yeah, um, I mean, I figure it kind of just like from nineteen the nineteen forty five or so until nineteen fifty five when he actually when um, uh, Disneyland actually opened and have that be like the fa- the final episode. But I, I just I would just love to see the actual story of that. Um, but I think, I mean, yeah, you could see a documentary and that'd be really cool, but I would love to see actual like dramatization and see, you know, like some of the fights between, um, Walt and his wife, because, you know, he's like tearing up their backyard and taking away all of her gardening area to build a model railroad. So, Mike, I, I love the idea, but I have a suggestion, and I'm just going to put it on the table. You can pick it up. You can do whatever you want with it. Instead of it focusing so much drive to do that, maybe you, you have – like maybe the episodes are titled by the name of the people. So you have one that's called Walt, and you get him having the idea, and then you do another one about Herb, as in Herb Ryman, who designed the um, – he designed uh, the Sleeping Beauty castle and did right. a lot of the artwork. And then maybe you do one called Raleigh, and Raleigh is showing all the the oh, stuff that he. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like, um, what what, what about one well, called Roy? Well, Roy Disney, yeah. having him trying to see that get all the money together. I see, honestly, I could see like a like a Stanley Tucci as as Roy. Oh, Roy Disney. Disney. oh God, yeah. Ooh, I like was, that a lot. Was, Nervous accountant. Yeah. And, you know, just constantly trying to protect Walt from himself, basically. Right. And then at the end, maybe you have one that brings it all together. And, um, oh, God, I can't remember the guy's name. Um, Who? He he was the guy who was the newscaster who hosted the opening of of Disneyland. Oh, Oh, Linkletter. Yeah. Uh, Art Linkletter. Art Linkletter. And the last episode is called Art. And it's, they open the park. <laughs> With Art Linkletter, Ronald Reagan in there as well. Oh, God. Yeah, he was, that's right. He was, he was governor of California. No, 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 he, no, no, no. He, he still, was not. He still, yeah, this was. He, he was a, one of the reporters that helped. Oh, host. that's right. Yeah. He actually interviewed the Rathers um, and asked them about the Disneyland Hotel that they were building at the time. So, yeah, I like the idea a lot. I think that, you know, definitely it's it wasn't, I, I mean, everyone, you know, whenever they talk about, especially Disneyland, it was Walt's Dream. It's Walt's Dream. It's Walt's Drive. There were a lot of hands that built that park. Well, I, I would love that, but I think you would kind of, it would essentially still be Walt's story. He would be like a through line that would hold everything together. So you could like focus on some of the other characters, but it would still be have to be Walt would have to still play a major role in each of the yeah. episodes. Oh yeah, yeah. But kind of like the way that he played, um, you know, Walt was a kind of a featured character in Saving Mr. Banks. Right. I mean, I, I and also I, I love to have Tom Hanks in there playing Walt, but he'd be he'd be playing the older Walt, and you'd need a younger guy. Yeah, I agree. I I, I like that idea a lot. And you know me, I am a nerd for like Disneyland, Disney World history. 
Well, so am I. You know that. About the 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 making of Disneyland. Yeah, we we both are. Disneyland. It's actually really good. So. Yeah. Awesome. Joe. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we're waiting. Waiting. (laughs) All right. For my next pitch. Working title is Redline, and it is, it is the tale of how two brothers and amateur racers showed up to the 1979 Le 24 Hours of Le Mans out of nowhere with a duffel bag full of cash and paid $200,000, or the equivalent of a million, almost a million dollars in today's money, to buy their way into winning the race overall. With the win, they exploded into the American motorsports scene and overnight became household names. But it turns out that the Whittington brothers were also drug lords, parlaying their multi-million dollar weed business into a pretty into pretty lucrative racing careers, making a name for themselves at the highest levels of American motorsports. Um, Klaus, their driver, he's he's going to go first, and then Bill, and then so, and they're like, wait, 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 wait. Now, why is your driver going first? Because it's my car. My driver goes first, then you, then you. And I go, what if he crashes? We don't get to drive the car. We spend all the money because that's racing. And they're like, no. He's like, fine. Well, don't drive. And they're like, well, what does it take for us to go first? And lightheartedly, he goes, buy the car. And he was already selling his cars. It was in the business was sell- building and selling race cars. So he threw a crazy number at him, like $200,000, which was more than what the car was worth, just to shut him up. And they go, okay. And he's like, what? Like, go back to our trailer, go to the duffel bag, take out $200,000 and not a penny more. And the way I envisioned this is something in similar to the vein as uh, Ford versus Ferrari, but lean heavily into the 80s uh, atmosphere. Because <laughs> they were based out of south, south, the southeastern U.S. and florida so that right there makes it a natural for any any movie about drug drug running uh, what, what was that movie with tom cruise as the the cocaine de- cocaine runner oh he was a pilot yeah yeah oh, oh, oh. extra <clears throat> I, I, I'm looking it up. And by the way, Joe, I would have been put more, but I was taking a drink because you're talking about racing. So, Because <laughs> <laughs> I, I could totally see in the style of that movie where it's like yes. it's very kind of almost tongue-in-cheek just following them around as they're just buying their way into racing. Right, exa- exactly, because it, it, it's a, it is such a wild – you know, for, for racing nerds like me, it is such a wild story. And – and basically, it, it, how it starts off is, like I said, these two brothers who were completely unknown. They, they, they just showed up out of nowhere. And originally what the plan was is, okay, so, the, so they go to the, the, this team called Kremer Racing. And they were racing Porsche, uh, Porsches, Porsche 935s. And in sports car racing, you have what are called basically a lot of gentlemen racers. You know, basically rich guys who just do this for a hobby. Or rich guys who, you know, will pay like ten, twenty thousand dollars to drive, you know, to spend some time driving the, ra- you know, uh, racing the car during the twenty-four hours of Le Mans. And basically, that's what they did. You know, that these these the Whittington brothers did is they they paid twenty thousand dollars per seat 
to drive a few hours, you know, you know, a, a couple of times during the race. You know, the team had its own professional driver whose career was to drive race cars. So they were like, okay, at the start of the race, our professional driver, he's going to start the race and, you know, he'll, he'll, he'll do the first shift. And then you guys, you know, can take over for a couple hours after that. Mm. They were like, well, no, oh, the name of the movie was American made. Oh, yeah. 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 Okay. So, so the Whittingtons were like, no, we paid $20,000. We should start the race. And I was like, okay, you want to do that? And he, and, and the team owner just kind of threw in, he said, you want to do that? You know, buy the car. And they were like, okay, how much? And he just jokingly said, you know what? $200,000. The brothers went and said, okay, back in our trailer, go to the duffel bag, take $200,000, not a cent more, ah! and come back and we'll take the car. <laughs> and that's what happened. And they, you know, they managed to win the race. I mean, the professional driver did most of the driving. Right. So, and he did a brilliant job. They, they won by, by such a huge amount that them, the brothers driving wasn't really a big issue. Right. But, but that, like I said, that was their launching pad into big time American racing. But they will also, it, 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 it it's kind of not really, people aren't really sure if the racing was just a, to launder their, their drug money. Or if the racing was just was feeding the the, the drug running, they were using their racing as kind of like okay, well we you know as sort of like advertising for their drug running because I mean it, oh, there's so many layers. There's like a, a Shell suntan company that sold no product. They they, they were at they were, the, the race cars were sponsored by a suntanning uh, suntan uh, lotion company that advertised had advertising. There were print ads and everything else like that, but sold no product. And the FBI kind of, kind of like, wait a second, what the hell's going on here? <laughs> I mean, they made enough money that they bought one of the most famous racetracks in the U.S. It's a track called Road Atlanta. But uh-huh. unbeknownst to people, it, the, the track is surrounded by forests, so you really can't, you know, it, it's surrounded by huge, tall pine trees. You can't really see beyond, you know, what's going on on the on the track. Well. Ne- apparently next to the track they cut down a landing strip for their planes <laughs> and during races because again when you're when during the race you're paying attention to what's going on on the tr- on the track and the cars are so loud that you can't hear a plane landing with you know two tons of uh, marijuana in it <laughs> <laughs> so yeah oh, so cool. so yeah so something like american made Lean heavily into the '80s and just go nuts. Nice. And I like that too. You know what? Honestly, Joe, you know what will always win me over to an '80s movie uh, when you go deep cuts. Yeah, on that '80s stuff. Let's let's not just open up with "Jump" by Van Halen because everybody knows it. Go with some deep no. jumps. You know? No, it did. It, it would start at the at the 1979 24 Hours of when you have these two brothers with a duffel bag full of and it wasn't like it was cash it was like hundreds of, and bricks of cash <laughs> money, 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 money. <laughs> awesome i mean and there's, there's like rumors that they used their race cars to actually smuggle the drugs into the trip because in europe you know yeah you know the, the cars go cro- across the borders all the time and border inspections aren't going to tear down a race car they don't know what they're looking at so they, right, there's right. like rumors that they've actually hid their drugs in the race cars. 
awesome. In special commodity. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. It'd be be so wild. I I love that. Cool. All right. Yeah. I I would. I would. Again. I would watch that. So. Yeah, I'd watch that. Yeah. Catherine. I've thought of another one. Oh. Oh. All right. Well. Tell you what, since Joe just wrapped, why don't you give us our first one or your second one? Doesn't matter. Yep. And we'll back to you. Okay. Close it out. So, all right. So I uh, 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 remembered. You know, we were talking about various things, and I remembered. I told you guys about this episode of the Lions Led by Donkeys podcast oh. called The Battle of Athens. Yep. Yep. Where uh, uh, what happened was. There was like this small town in the mid 40s where people were just taking, you know, stealing elections to make sure that they get to keep their fascist people in charge. Violent deputies, racketeering, stolen elections, voter fraud, all kinds of stuff. And the thing was that there were a bunch of people that had just come back from World War II. They'd survived World War II and they're like, this is fascism. We know what fascism looks like, and we know how to deal with it. And so they like they just like all these veterans got together. It was like, get your guns, nice. And they went and they like fought the corrupt officials and stopped them. Cantrell, who came from a wealthy and influential family in nearby Etowa, tied his campaign closely to the popularity of the Roosevelt administration. Cantrell rode FDR's coattails to victory over his Republican opponent in what came to be known as the Vote Grab of 1936, which delivered McMinn County to Tennessee's Crump Machine. The sheriff and all of his deputies were paid under a fee system. They got money for every person they booked, incarcerated, and released. I'm sure you can see how this would cause problems. So, sort of like a live-action Rambo part, uh, First Blood? No. I mean, like a li- uh, live, uh, real life. No. <laughs> no. No. Rambo was Ram- Rambo was the soldier who came back and then like because you know he he had the audacity of growing his hair a little long Brian Denny he decided to uh, just abuse him. But but yeah no no he was no this is different because it's like these are people that survived uh Guadalcanal, the Bulge, Normandy, the beach of Normandy, and yeah, they, gonna, they came they home and they were like, shit. yeah, they were like, no, we're going to have a fair and honest election, aren't we? <laughs> I like so, that. You know what? I see that as being like something that HBO would put as like a, a movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah like, yeah, that's what I'm thinking too. They, it's like a, it's a, an HBO movie, just like a one you know, one thing, two hours, you're going to sum it up. You know, it could be done pretty quick. Yeah. Pretty, like pretty quick, yeah. Because it could be done, done as, a, as a movie. Yeah. But, yeah. That I, was, I never, know. like, I, I know you had kind of mentioned that story before. I, cause I don't, like, regularly listen to Lions Led by Donkeys. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know what? The thing is, that that podcast has so many ideas for movies that could be made. Just because a lot of the stuff they touch on hasn't, you know, yeah, hasn't really been discussed yeah i mean he goes he he does some really deep cuts yeah he does deep cuts on stuff that is not good 
and people are like, oh, yeah, no. that's not going to be cinematic. This this is one that people would go to see. Yeah. You know, because it's, it's positive. Yeah, I like that. In my opinion, yeah, a lot of a lot of his stuff is is much darker and and no, yeah, it's very you know, dark. or yeah, just it's or nice. just goofy. There's there's also all the like the animals that have participated in war, but that would be like you know a series on Discovery or something or Animal <laughs> Planet. But uh, this one I think would work, and I agree. Like HBO movie. Yeah. There's a there's there's a book. There was a podcast. There could definitely be a movie of this. Nice. I like that. Awesome. Awesome. All right. Well, I guess it's back around to me then to finish off our my last pick here. So um, I've got one. This would, again, be for streaming. Maybe this could be Hulu or Prime. And it's just called OK. <laughs> and it tells the story of Sergio Zyman who was the marketing director for Coca-Cola, who was fired after he spearheaded the new Coke uh, promotion. After the failure of that, he was fired. But then in the early 90s, he was brought back to try to find a beverage and a marketing ploy that would appeal to Gen X. And his idea was a concoction called OK Soda, um, which is one of the most baffling marketing promotions of the 1990s. It might seem normal now because we do a lot of like cynical um, and meta type of, of advertising now, but in the 1990s, this was downright dystopian. An important announcement regarding OK Soda. Due to the controversial nature of this product, a toll-free number has been established to handle stories regarding its consumption. That number is 1-800-I-FEEL-OK. We encourage you to report the good things that happen when you drink OK. Also, we encourage you to report the bad things that happen when you choose not to drink OK. That number again, 1-800-I-FEEL-OK. Things are going to be OK. And to essentially have this guy who who is brought back in, and he has a minor success introducing the world to Fruitopia, also kind of with that, you know, gearing for the youth market to come up with this beverage that is a um, that is essentially it, the, the flavor is indescribable. The can is unappealing. The advertisements are just like they kind of seem to be lecturing you about it's OK to not be OK. Um, and the, the, the beauty is, is that when. You know, in, in my in my in my mind's eye of watching this, like, you know, I traveled. You know, this this guy Sergio Zymans, I traveled the world, and you know that Coca Cola is the second most recognizable word in the world. Do you know what the <laughs> is? Okay. 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 There we go, and you can call it okay because you're not. You're not asking people to exceed their expectations. The taste of this will exceed their expectations, but they're going to go in with lowered expectations. We've got this amazing ad campaign, and we we have an artist who direct who um, he's the artist of Ghost World. He's going to he's going to design our cans. Now, fun little fact I found out about those cans: there's there's a face that shows up on almost all the cans of just like this this like bored looking young man. 
turns out he drew that on a based on a photograph of a young Charles Manson for his first oh, month. Oh God! Yep. And nobody. That's he's like, right. you know, when I they found about out that. about that, it's like, why did you do that? He said, "There's nothing in my contract that said I couldn't." <laughs> but I see this as being like, because I I just recently watched Air, and I watched Flamin' Hot, which are both just movies about product. Air is phenomenal because it's that the idea of selling um, the, sh- the you know the person as the shoe. And it's more than just like some, you know, a, a, a an advertise, you know, like a, a um a sponsorship deal. This shoe is Michael Jordan. And in the case of Flamin' Hot, it's about this guy who has just been he's been working at the bottom for so long and he notices that when he works for Frito Lay, they're missing a specific market. This for okay, it's like that, but only about jumping from one failure. Not learning from that failure and moving to another failure. Now, the interesting thing is, is that this guy is actually a uh, Sergio Zyman is a very successful um, public speaker. He's written a few books called you know, as part of the Death of Marketing as we know it um, series. So he is actually successful, and I feel like that needs to be played up. But again, just like with the um, the Menachem Golan story. Wide-eyed optimism. Like, there's no such thing as a bad idea. We are going to we're going to channel our ideas because we need to get through to cynical Generation X. It's it's really kind of the embodiment of the American ideal or the yeah. the, the the American fantasy, basically. Yeah, that's the second chance, and that second chance yes. was okay. Well, that's a good tagline. I like that. I can see it because all all too often with these product movies or movies that are based around like an idea or something like that, they always end up with the success. Yeah. Very rarely do you see something where it's a failure. Right. And a bath. I mean, this. Do you? I mean, I, I had this conversation with Catherine and Mike last episode when we were off air because you weren't you weren't with us, Joe. Mike had never. Mike, uh, correct me if I'm wrong. You'd never actually heard of OK Soda, right? Yeah. No. Never. Okay. Catherine remembered it, though. Right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, no, yeah. it tasted terrible. I seem to remember oh, somebody yeah. I, no, I making remember, a joke I about it, yeah. it tasting tasting like they'd mop, it was the mop water from the floor of the Coca-Cola factory. Yeah. But uh, but I called – there was one summer where I called 1-800-I-feel-okay every day. <laughs> so, like, I wouldn't have drunk okay soda nowadays, but I totally would have followed them on – social media because they had it was it was like you know nihilistic arby's and stuff like that it was but there was like you call them and there would be a joke or a comment or something and it was it was an 800 number so you weren't even it wasn't like a 900 number you weren't paying for it you could call them from a payphone which i did because i was working at cumberland farms that year yeah and it was just like it was just fun yeah and that's the thing too like i was so i it was test marketed out here in Massachusetts, but I was living in Virginia. So when I'd come home to visit my mother, I would grab like cases of it and I'd bring it back and I'd share it with my coworkers. And they're like, why the fuck are you doing this to us? 
unlike Fruitopia, which was actually tasty. I really like Fruitopia. I, I, I like Fruitopia. Yeah, I like Fruitopia, but ugh. Yeah, Fruitopia. Okay, yeah, okay, soda was terrible. Fruitopia was tasty, and their labels were really cool. And I was texting with you guys, and I, uh, I still have one Fruitopia label that I peeled off and like wrapped in uh, clear tape so that I could use it as a bookmark. Um. So uh, I'm sorry, Joe. Did you did you ever have it okay? Oh yeah, yeah, I've had okay. All right, it was awful. God, ugh. yeah, I, I was not. A I think I took one sip. Bad. I was like, yeah, no. Nope. It was like spicy orange soda was like the kindest thing I heard. I also heard that if you blend Coca Cola, Dr Pepper, and orange soda, you could you could closely approximate the flavor. So now the next time I see one of those. Um, like those those computer operated Coke machines that you see at Burger King. <laughs> oh, oh yeah, and Wendy's. You get those at Wendy's too, and uh, Kidoba. Wendy's, uh, five Guys. You said like Five Guys. Yeah. Yep. 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 But yeah, that's the thing. And Joe, I like I like your spin on that. It's like we always see this ending in success, and it ends in success in a certain way, but just not with this product. Right. And then maybe and, and then. Thing at the end, like you know, uh, you know, Sergio Simon went off to become a successful author of the book series, the the death of marketing as we know it, and is a successful speaker. OK Soda merchandise now sells for hundreds of dollars on on the internet. Goddamn <laughs> eBay. <laughs> so. And now, now Mike's like, I never want to know this. I never want. I, I, I will kill the person who makes a time machine so I could go back to 1994 and try to drink this. Yeah. <laughs> nah, I'm good. Okay. I drink, I drink my tea now. I gotcha. Yeah. Yeah. I know you're not much of a soda drinker either. No, not anymore. No. Yeah. So. All right. Well, Mike, what's your last? Uh, what's your last pick? Uh, my last pick is I, I call it. Are you going to close the beaches? And uh, it's a story of how a prodigy director with only one feature film to his name took a best-selling novel about a killer shark, and thanks to a mechanical shark that never worked, an ocean an ocean film shoot that was an absolute nightmare, and going more than a hundred days over the shooting schedule and three hundred percent over budget, released a film that changed cinema forever and became the very first blockbuster. Stop playing with yourself, Hooper. Slow ahead, if you please. You heard him, slow ahead. I can go slow ahead. Come on down and chump some of this shit. Um, I'm thinking this would be either a actual, you know, big screen movie, or maybe a four part miniseries, depending on how much you wanted to break break it down. Yeah. But um, 
Yeah, I mean, just the story of how Jaws was made is just is almost as interesting as the movie itself. And, so. Oh yeah, very much so. Um, right, and, the, and like the grand the grand irony that Brewster Sh- the fact that Brewster Shark malfunctioned made the movie better. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yes. I agree. And, you know, Dave and I were having a conversation. Dave McLean and I were having a conversation about this about because we were talking about his Star Wars movie and how it's amazing how that movie was saved in the editing room. Jaws is the same thing. And oh, I feel like with Dave's idea of having Steven Spielberg being the only person in that room of Lucas's director friends who saw something in what he saw of Star Wars because he'd experienced that. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, yeah, and Verna Fields absolutely the you know MVP of that one. Yeah, well, Verna well, Fields that, well, and John Williams, obviously. But I mean, obviously, I you know I love Jaws. I'm going to see it tomorrow actually in IMAX. Cool. Yeah, down at um, the uh, the Aquarium IMAX theater. Um, oh, I know where that is. Yeah, and yeah, they're showing it tomorrow at seven o'clock. So I'm going to be, I'm going to go see that. But uh, just, the, I think the story of that, and just, you know, um, the uh, kind of from, from what I, from what I've heard, the uh, vague animosity between uh, Shaw and uh, Dreyfus. That'd be a really interesting uh, thing to show in the theater, in the uh, movie. Um, obviously, just the uh, amount of uh, writing that uh, Gottlieb and uh, all, the, all the writers were doing. Yeah. And the fact that, you know, sometimes they'd be shooting, you know, they'd get the script the day before the shoot. Um, and the fact, the fact that a, you know, brand new director. Uh, you know, he'd only done one feature film before that, and he wanted to shoot on the ocean, oh. which every, any director with any kind of more experience would say, "Do not shoot on the ocean." But Spielberg's like, ah, "I can do it." I've never directed a feature film, Mike, and I know not to shoot on the ocean for your second movie. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, because I mean, yeah, especially since he wanted a perfectly empty horizon. And if you're out on the ocean and you see a sailboat and like the, like twenty like twenty miles away, you gotta wait for it to go all the way across. You know what? I'm also thinking too, Mike. The actor that plays Robert Shaw has to just just be the most Irish person that ever Irished. Yeah. On the big screen, Brendan Gleeson. Uh, yes. I don't think, I don't, I don't, physically, I don't think he looks like Robert Scottish. Shaw, but and, no, but um, no, uh, yeah, but Catherine, have you seen uh, the uh, Banshee of Inishirin? Uh, uh, In- oh. Yeah, no. I, yes. I know exactly what you're talking about. No, I haven't. Yeah, he no, he's he's, he's got Irish down perfect. And uh, yeah. bonus points to him if he can do the uh, the Indianapolis speech. While sloshed, like just like Shaw did. Of course he can. <laughs> yeah, Brendan I guess Gleason they, can do anything. Yeah, anything. I guess they did two two takes um, for that um, for the Indianapolis speech. 
one Shaw was drunk off his ass and one he wasn't. You can kind of tell, like, if you look at his eyes, some of them he's glassy-eyed, some of them he's not. Some shots he's not. But, Makes yeah. Sense. I mean, he was, he was practically dead when he made that movie. And he was, mm-hmm. all, you know, he was mostly dead by the time he did The Deep. And I know The Deep is credited with killing him. So... But I just think that would be the most fascinating movie ever. Um, or, or again, or a four-part miniseries, depending on how, uh, if you wanted to show how much you wanted to show or how much you wanted to cut out. And bo- again, bonus points if you can film it on Nanta uh, on Martha's Vineyard. Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm down. I'm down with that. All right, so. Um... Catherine volunteered to go next. Yes. Yes. Um, So this is the one I was planning on before I stumbled across my brain and went, oh, there's another thing. So anyway, um, my working title is Tyrant King of Schenectady. Okay. This is based on uh, Steve Rossi's stranglehold on the Schenectady School District as heard on This American Life's episode, Petty Tyrant. That was on a Wednesday. On Friday morning, cops swarmed the pen and arrested Steve. They had to. A longtime employee with the Schenectady City School District is in jail without bail tonight. The facility's director is accused of setting off an explosion outside a house. Police say they also found explosives in his office on school grounds. Superintendent Eric Ely called a news conference the following Monday, saying he was shocked, shocked to find out Steve Rossi was a thug. My reaction is uh, shock, uh, certainly uh, concern for the safety of our, of our employees as well as our students. Uh, Many people I talked to said I, this I enraged them, that Ely claimed ignorance about Steve's behavior. Ely politely declined to talk to me for this story. He's still facing lawsuits from former employees. But he gave an extended interview to the local CBS reporter, Marcy Natal. He said he thought workers' complaints of Rossi's tyranny were overblown. So he was, uh, this is a guy who was hired in 1973 as a laborer at the Schenectady School District, making $3.12 an hour. Uh, He eventually worked his way up and got, you know, you know, higher positions. And then he decided that he wanted to run for union president for, you know, the people that do this kind of work. And he bullied people into helping him run and he got the position. And then later he was promoted to uh, director of buildings and grounds for the district but and if he was in a supervisory position, he couldn't be in the union anymore because he'd have hiring and firing power. Mm-hmm. So he was like, don't call me director. Call me title. Give me the title of head utility worker. So that meant he wasn't legally the director or manager. So he could continue to do what he was doing, being a bully and uh but people couldn't go to the union to complain. You know, the first thing you're supposed to do is go to your manager. He was the manager. Then you go to the union. He was the union. And uh, so he continued doing that. Um, and when he was promoted, he was making, you know, before that he was making 37500 a year. And then when he was promoted to not director. He was making $67,500 for salary. And then he also took on the position of energy manager. And so he would like go around. And if you were running a space heater in your classroom, 
look out. Mm. He would come on you, come down on you like a ton of bricks. Um, but yeah, so he was just terrorizing people, scaring them, bullying them. There was like, you know, his, uh, his, uh, secretary at one point, he pretended to grab her by the hair while other people were there, drag her into his office and bend her over his desk. And oh, okay. Yeah. He was like, isn't this fun? And everybody's like, yeah, boss, of course it's fun. Um, wow. And, you know, pe- people that tried to oppose him, he would, you know, terrorize them, literally. Like, you know, for, you know, he would go with, you know, vandalize their homes, leave M80s on their cars in the driveway. Jesus. Uh, set bombs to go off. And, like, there was one bombing that failed because he wasn't a smoker, but what he was doing was, like, lighting a cigarette and then putting it next to the, the fuse that he had rigged. And But he didn't know that New York State has a law about, like, you have to have fire-safe papers where if you're not continually puffing on the cigarette, it goes out. So they had DNA evidence. Oh. And, but he'd never been convicted of a crime, so they had to, like recruit some people that had been, you know, including the the secretary that he'd been abusive to, that when she admitted that she didn't find him sexually attractive, he, like, had her demoted and kicked out. Um, she had to, like, use her ring to find out where he was eating breakfast, because he always ate breakfast out, and usually forced people that he liked to go out to eat breakfast with him. It's like, you're coming out to eat breakfast. Yes, sir. Um... And so she found out where he was eating, and eventually they managed to grab a fork before the, uh, uh, the, the, the cops grabbed a fork before the waitresses cleared it so that they could get the DNA evidence and oh. prove that he was the one that had lit the cigarette. And they also got somebody that, like, had his own problems, and they're like, we would like you to help us out. And he was like, sure thing, I will help you out to reduce my problems. And mm. so he went in with a wire and talked to Steve Rossi repeatedly. And eventually the guy was, uh, this guy Keith was like, you know, I want to teach somebody a lesson. Do you have some explosives or something I can do? And it's like, oh, yeah, sure. Here, have this, you know, thing that's like, it, it's an explosive that he just had in his office behind a potted fake plant. It held more than 17 grams of volatile flash powder, which is 300 times more powerful than the strongest commercially available firework. Oh, his office was in a middle school. Jeez. (laughs) He had this thing on top of his file cabinet in a middle school. So the next day, the police roll up and arrest him because they had as much evidence as they needed. He was eventually charged with 22 felonies and convicted of 18 of them. Wow. And the uh, the prosecution called 62 witnesses. They had DNA evidence. They had wire recordings. The defense had two witnesses, and one of them was cross-examined so effectively she kind of did Rossi more harm than good. So in two, you know, he was arrested in 2009 after like doing this for 15 years. Um, and he's not eligible for parole until 2032. 
Um, by the way, FBI. yeah. However, he was never technically fired, so he's still in tension. Allowed his pension of eighty thousand dollars a year. Because when he was arrested in two thousand nine, he was making more than one hundred twenty-five thousand dollars a year salary. Wow. By the way that he manipulated the system, and now he's like, I deserve a commutation of sentence. I've done my time. My wife and I talk about whether or not I'm a psychopath, but I feel in control of myself <laughs> when I'm mad. But yeah, I'm I'm surprised that like this story is crazy. It has bombs. It has <laughs> it has vandalism. It has just all kinds of corruption. And it hasn't and it hasn't been made into a, a a movie or or a series yet. I think I'm thinking like a three part series on Netflix currently. Oh yeah, they love that kind of stuff. That small town crime kind of stuff. I, I yeah, I love, wow. But but yeah, I, I at least highly recommend listening to the This American Life episode about this, uh, episode number four nineteen, Petty Tyrant. But Excellent. you know they they did a you know somebody heard uh, heretics about Carlton Pearson and made a movie in 2018 called come Sunday uh, with that guy played by Chwetel Ijiofor. So it's like, why has anybody heard this? And it's like, there are bombs. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I'm, I'm in, I love, I love any, any movie or TV series about petty small town politics. Yup. Yeah. Yeah, there there are people still suffering with PTSD because of this fucker. Oh jeez. Oh jeez. Oh, those are wow. the worst. Oh yeah. And he doesn't I'm, he doesn't know what he did. He's like, what? He's like, I knew I could maybe be arrested for this, but going to prison for property what? damage. Property yeah. damage. <laughs> he considers what he did property damage. It's like, yeah, I guess if you leave an M80 on somebody's car. You don't think they're actually going to die, and you could call it property damage. I did everything right, and they indicted me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, wow. Wow. All right, Joe. Well, you're taking us home with this, so uh, you get something that can top that one? <laughs> God damn. I'll, I'll try. All right, so. I think so. My final, my, so my final pitch. The Battle of Bamber Bridge. In Great Britain, as the Allies are ramping up in preparation for the upcoming invasion of, Euro- of mainland Europe, America's hypocrisy is laid bare in the very home of its ally. Like generations before them, black Americans willingly took arms to fight for the liberty that their own nation vehemently denies them. But when they arrived in the UK, they were surprised to find not a nation that separated them from society because of the color of their skin, but a people who welcomed them with open arms and gratitude that these young men and women were willing to sacrifice their lives for a foreign land. Their white counterparts, shocked at seeing the black soldiers being treated as equals, demanded that their hosts enforce the same racial, racial, racial order that they were so accustomed back at home. But when a small pub in the sleepy village of Lancashire said bollocks to the whole idea of Jim Crow in the U.K., Tension finally came to a head. In the wake of the Detroit race riots of 1943, a group of black soldiers said enough is enough following the killing of a young black private at the hands of white MPs. 
During World War II, black American servicemen stationed in England were generally welcomed by their British hosts in ways that were completely opposite of the Jim Crow segregationist practices back in America. Black GIs would drink and socialize in mixed company in British pubs, where they were not only allowed to enter, but were warmly welcomed by the locals. Black soldiers saw around them a very different reality from that which they faced at home, a non-segregated society where they were welcomed as fellow fighters against fascism rather than second-class soldiers. The U.S. Army authorities, however, did not condone this equal treatment. And that wow. led to the Battle of Bamber Bridge. Which yeah, they covered was this actually, on uh, which was, of- Yeah, it was covered on uh, lines, lines led by donkeys, but it was also, it, was, it didn't become public until fairly recently. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Because, well, so basically what happened, you know, the UK, the, the, the United States asked the UK to basically have some sort of like segregation. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the, the British in their very kind of passive aggressive way said, okay, <laughs> you know, they, they went to their people. It was like, you know, you know, they, we, we don't recommend that you fraternize with the, the, with the, uh, with the black, you know, the black soldiers, you know, but they, they didn't like, enforce it there wasn't like a hard law or set rule that said they couldn't they just like i said they just in a very british way said you know we we'd like it if you did type of thing <laughs> so when the american when the black troops started arriving they were the, some of the first troops to start arriving in england to m- make because they weren't uh black troops were uh, soldiers weren't allowed to be in combat units right a lot of them were in support units so a lot of the initial troops that came to the UK to build the bases and the airfields and stuff like that were the black soldiers. They're the one that, that were, you know, like typical American history built on the back of black people. <laughs> yep. A lot of the big bases that the U a lot of the bases that the United States used and a lot of that, and that England used too, like the IR, uh, the IRF were built by black American soldiers. But the locals, the 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 um, the, uh, the British people, welcomed them with open arms. Like, yeah, yeah. they were date like they were dating the local women and stuff like that, and they had no problem whatsoever with with uh, with the black troops. Now, some you know some of them you know some of the more uptight English people, surprise surprise, didn't serve because they didn't want to lose you know. They didn't want to lose the business of the white the white soldiers and stuff like that. But for the most part, segregation just wasn't a thing in the UK. You know, yeah. I mean, I'm not 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 that I'm giving a pass to the UK. I mean, they have their own history and stuff like that that we we won't yeah. cover here. But there's a great line yeah, in the show uh, Ted Lasso where um, they're having a conversation with Roy about his you know like his dad is like is your dad a little racist? He's like. It's a sixty-year-old man who lives in the south of London. Of course, he's a little racist. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they've they've got a bit of racism, but England is more classist than it is racist. Yeah, that's more. Yeah, in England, it's more about class and actual outright race racism, though. But anyways, so so the, the, the basically the white officer, the white soldiers and officers, 
had a problem with this. It's like, no, the, 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 we, they don't, we don't want you serving the black people. And, 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 and they were like, if they dated the English girls, they were like, well, how do I know she didn't go with a black guy before, you know, the night before. And, you know, right. it's just like, it's, you know, the typical us Southern, uh, just us racist bullshit. bullshit. Oh my God. Well, so what happened, yeah. So, well, what happened was there was this rule that if you were off, if you were, so it, it applied to both white and black soldiers, but if you were off base, you basically had to wear like, what are called class A, which is basically your like a suit and tie uniform. Yeah. Okay. To basically, so you people know that you're a soldier in the U.S. Army. Well, a couple of uh, black soldiers went to the, the local pub in Lancashire, weren't wearing their their class A's, and a white officer noticed that and called the MPs, the the military police, which were all white, and they started. They were going in to arrest him. And everybody basically threw a fit. Like, and even the pe- the English people are like, "What? What's your problem?" You know, like an RAF officer went to the MPs and says, "Hey, th- just leave the guy alone. He's having a drink. Leave, you know, let him enjoy the night and stuff like that." Yeah. And a bit of a scuffle broke out, and the white, the black private started to run away, and got shot in the back. Oh. Yes. So all hell breaks loose. All the so- all the black soldiers in their unit back at their base were heard rumors that the white MPs were coming in to take him and basically, you know, torture him and kill him and stuff like that. So they started picking up arms. And just like I said, all hell broke loose. There was a, a, a firefight. Um, I think there was like seven people injured and one, you know, and this, and the black private was killed. Mm. So, and all the black soldiers got court-martialed and convicted. And none mm-hmm. of the white soldiers, none of the white MPs were, even though the, the, the judge advocate general noted that the racism and out, you know, the, the white MPs taunting and their race, the racism towards the black, uh, the black soldiers was the primary cause. Mm-hmm. They got away with it. Of course. So, so of course. Wow. So where are you seeing that? How are you, how are you seeing this as a, as a film or TV show or miniseries? It's a film. I think it's a film because it, it was only a one night thing. It was only like a couple hours. It was, you know, yeah. it, the, the, the initial, uh, you know, the, the initial killing of the, the black soldier, I think, happened like at seven o'clock that night. And by six o'clock the next morning, it was over. So, yeah. Okay. But, yeah, it was yeah. one of those things where, again, in light of the Detroit race riots and all the propaganda coming out of the U.S. about fighting for liberty and everything else like that, for right. this to be so out there, and the U.S. and, and <laughs> again, this wasn't well known about outside of the U.K. You know, outside of like because the U.S. military and government put the lid on this right. you know how it's like okay how, how can we say we're fighting for liberty and and freedom against these fascists when we're doing this to our own people you know and, and you gotta remember that you know for all you know hitler was a shitty person and stuff like that but he you know the germans love to point to the u.s and say well look at what you're doing to your people we learned we learned this from you <laughs> 
We learned it from I learned you. I learned it from watching you, Dad. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I can see this being a theatrical movie. Yeah. That wouldn't get shown in Florida. Oh, God. No. <laughs> Florida, Texas, most of the southern states, yeah. yeah no. uh, you know, just leave it to the Northeast elites to uh, to watch this one. But at least yep. we won't have to buy out theaters and, me, and inflate our numbers <laughs> that Yep. Sound of freedom. Sound of freedom. Sound of freedom. <laughs> Sound of boredom. <laughs> so, well, guys, thank I, I, I love I love all these ideas. This is great. I really wish that. Hopefully, there's somebody out there after the the SAG AFTRA and the WGA strike. You're listening to this podcast. Please feel free to reach out to us and let us know which idea you liked. The most multiple, if you can. I want to see all my friends succeed here. So our um, prices are very reasonable. We are very reasonable people. We we we. we I don't think anyone would would uh, accuse us of not being reasonable. No. Exactly. Exactly. So okay, well. I want to thank everybody who uh, contributed to their thoughts on what would make great um, dramatizations of stuff. That's a lot of. A lot of great history out there, and I'm really, really excited about this. And a lot of stuff I had never heard about before. So this is like a history lesson all in one. Who says you don't learn stuff from listening to Geek Salad? (laughs) (laughs) That's right. So, oh, by the way, I do want to throw out a very special thank you. They didn't contribute to this episode, but we got a lovely shout-out on the Bitches with Beards podcast from this past week. Um, So I just want to thank them. And hopefully they're they're listening to this right now. If they can stand all of this stuff that we're talking about right now, so uh, gentlemen, thank you so much. I look forward to you letting me know if you ever do find a tomatoey chardonnay. Um, and I'm sorry I let you know of the existence of such a thing. So <laughs> <laughs> it's a real thing, and it turned me off a of chardonnay 20 years ago. So anyway, so that's the next movie, huh? Yeah, exactly. Journey of Tomatoey Chardonnay. Yeah, Andy and the Tomato Tomatoey Chardonnay. It just shows up as a as, as free on Twitter on <laughs> one of the stupid movie things. Oh, I'm sorry, ten. Um, <laughs> I'm not calling it X. Who calls something that will be a fu- future financial app X? You call it ten. That's a fucking number. What <laughs> kind of idiot no, called it X? Andy, see eleven. Andy, they're predicting it's yes. going to be an X app. Oh, it is going to be an X app. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus Christ! If it weren't for the community I have built on ten, I, I would leave immediately. But um, you know, I do have some blue. I have a few blue sky passes. So um, yeah. But we'll get into that at the end. So anyway, next episode. We're going to stick with movies. Um, this is a summer movie. Summer is a movie time. I mean, hell, we just had Barbenheimer. And um, <laughs> and summer is also a book time. It is. Get on the beach. You read a good book. So we are going to be talking about the best and worst book series adaptations that were made for theatrical release. So we're not just talking single books here. We're talking about multi-book series that were turned into theatrically released movies. Um, 
And there's quite a few of them if you think about it. You know, just to throw a few out: uh, Lord of the Rings, The Hunger Games, uh, Dune, Harry Potter, Harry Potter, Wizard uh, Maze Runner. Uh, so there, there's quite a bit of stuff out there. I'm not so we sure want Wizard of Oz counts. The two Wizard of Oz theatrical releases were done very separately. We're talking about movie book series that were made into movie series. Well, Mike isn't completely far off, though, because like there was the, the Wizard of Oz. There was also a Return to Oz. So there are several. Yes, but, if, yeah, really but not, they, weren't, they weren't interrelated, is my argument. Okay. But I was going to say, too, though, if you really want to get in the weeds, there's a really shitty Oz uh, remake of one of the other books that Riff Tracks covered. Oh yeah. yeah I'm, I'm trying to I'm trying to keep it yeah. When when I like the more I thought about uh movies made from books, the the list just got insanely long and I was like, holy crap. Right. Uh, no, we can also talk about uh Patriot Games. Oh god, the Jack Ryan series. So there's quite a bit that we can that, there but there's quite a bit that we can talk about, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Cool. Cool. So we want to know from you what is your favorite or least favorite uh, book series theatrical adaptation? I really am curious about this. Um, are we including animated in this, Catherine? This is your idea, so I want to know. Are we including animated? Let's save animated for another time. Okay. So live action. Because that's action. a whole other thing. You know, the, the the more I looked at it, you know, we can we can have an entire uh you know manga episode. Oh Jesus. Well, yeah, that's interesting. And legitimately that's the one I tap I finally after two hundred and thirty nine episodes, that's the one I tap on. Um <laughs> I cannot speak we to can, any we can, Yeah, we can have one episode about Stephen King movies alone. That's oh god, yeah, that's true. So yeah, yeah. let us know. Uh, what your thoughts are. We'll obviously we'll put this out on the socials, but if you hear us in advance and you want in on that, you can uh, let us know by following us on Facebook at Geek Salad Podcast. We are on 10. We are on Blue Sky, and we are on threads at Geek Salad Radio. So you can uh, let us know your thoughts there. Um, if, you're li- if you're a first-time listener to the show, Hi. Um, you could check out <laughs> wherever you get your podcast, which is essentially where you just got it now. Um, Linktree, our, our linktree.com uh, slash Geek Salad uh, account has all of the areas that you can get it at, but you can check us out on Spotify, iTunes, Google Podcasts, and YouTube, where we, uh, Mike and I also do our retro movie reviews, so you can check out our video channel as well as the full audio for this um. So yeah, tons of different areas for you to interact with. I am really looking forward to hearing what y'all have to say about these book adaptations. And I think I got everything. Did I miss anything? Nope, I think you got it all. All right, fantastic. Well, anyway, folks, uh, until next time, I'm Andy. I'm Mike. I'm Joe. I'm Catherine. Go forth and be nerdful. We'll talk to you later. We'll see you at the streaming service.
You're gonna need a bigger boat.